Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Kim Shudo in again today. Guilty on both counts. The lead starts right now. A jury finds former police officer Kim Potter guilty of two counts of manslaughter in the killing of Dante Wright. Prison time she's now facing. Plus, Omicron may be spoiling some holiday gatherings, but there is a lot of good news. A new COVID-fighting pill, as well as positive signs about the threat from Omicron. And President Trump takes his case, once again, to the highest court in the land. A look at the push to have the Supreme Court keep his White House records secret. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jim Shudo, in for Jake Tapper. We begin with the breaking news. Former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter found guilty of manslaughter after roughly 27 hours of jury deliberations. Potter shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop last April. She mistook her firearm for a taser. It was all caught on body cam video. Just so chilling to see those images. Potter's sentencing is scheduled for February. Since she has no criminal history, the state of Minnesota's guidelines recommend a sentence between six to eight and a half years in prison and or a $30,000 fine. She is unlikely to face the maximum penalty of 15 years in prison. CNN's Omar Jimenez has been following the case since earlier this year, and he joins us now live from Minneapolis. Omar, I I wonder, how did Kim Potter respond to hearing this verdict? Well, Jim, Kim Potter, when this verdict was actually read, was very calm, did not show much emotion as this jury or as the judge went through these verdicts. In this courtroom, though, when that first verdict was read, that she was guilty of manslaughter, Katie Bryant, that's Dante Wright's mother, burst into tears as Wright's father began to comfort her. As things move forward, you can imagine the emotions are already in there. But uh, after Kim Potter was being taken into custody, we heard a loud, I love you from her husband. She shouted, I love you back. And she was taken out as she is going to be held without bail until her sentencing next month. The mother of Dante Wright continued to cry, but now being embraced by the prosecutors. And we just heard from Katie Bryant uh, just a few moments ago as she walked away and she simply said that they had been asking for accountability from the beginning and that's what they got today, Jim. Yeah, the the defense had had asked that she be allowed to go home as she waits sentencing. The judge rejected that. Uh, We did hear a short time ago from the prosecution as well as from Dante Wright's family and and I wonder, they were there. Uh, It was a tense, heartbreaking moment for them. What was their reaction? Well, at the end of the day, 
as much legal accountability that we saw here, their bottom line is they won't have Dante Wright home for the holidays. Uh, Keith Ellison, uh, the attorney general here in Minnesota, painted a bottom line saying that Kim Potter, while incarcerated, can correspond with their family. Dante Wright can't. And I want to I want to uh, I want you to hear, I should say, from Katie Bryant, Dante Wright's mother, and with her reaction right after this verdict was read. Take a listen. Oh, my gosh. Um, the moment that we heard guilty on the um, manslaughter one emotions, every single emotion that you could imagine just running through your body at that moment. Um, I kind of let out a yelp because it was built up in the anticipation of what was to come when, while we were waiting for the last few days. And um, now we've been able to process it. My thoughts are also with those who work in law enforcement and public safety. We hold you in high regard, and we also hold you to high standards. We don't want you to be discouraged. Your community respects and appreciates you. We want you to uphold the highest ideals of our society and ideals of safety. And this, of course, is the second high-profile conviction of a Minneapolis area police officer or former police officer that we've seen. Of course, back in April, it was Derek Chauvin that was convicted in the murder of George Floyd. And Ellison was asked about that. What kind of message does this send? And he said it was clear that juries here hold high standards for police officers. And that's the message he wants to be especially resonant when people look back at both of these cases that happened over the course of this year. When you remember, the Dante Wright shooting happened in the middle of the Chauvin trial. And one summative statement to to encapsulate the emotion here that this family was feeling, Katie Bryant said that the number 23 was Dante Wright's favorite number. And here he is getting justice on December 23rd. Jim. Indeed. Omar Jimenez in Minneapolis. Thanks so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss uh, the legal implications of this, the implications for police, retired Los Angeles Police Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey and defense attorney Caroline Polisi. Caroline, I wonder if I could be begin with you. You spent a lot of time in the courtroom. Were you surprised by guilty verdicts both on first and second degree manslaughter here? So, Jim, I, I was surprised, frankly, not because I think the jurors got it wrong on the law, but because Honestly, this is has been uh, traditionally the type of prosecution that has been difficult for prosecutors to get a guilty verdict on. It's just it's just the truth. Um, and so I, I think here, you know, you saw the state AG have to go back when this originally was indicted and add that top charge of the first degree manslaughter. This case was hard. Nobody was arguing that Kim Potter intentionally uh, did this act. And so I think that, you know, there is a real difference here between, as you were just noting, say, the Derek Chauvin trial. Kimberly Potter's case was was much different. And I think that it is true that the bigger picture here shows that jurors are willing to hold mm. police officers accountable, even in the context where it was a mistake. Yeah, uh, no notable. Sergeant Dorsey, I wonder, in your experience, are police departments, are police commanders around the country looking at the results, not just of this case, but the Derek Chauvin case, again, very different circumstances, but two cases where juries held police officers criminally responsible in ways that juries always haven't always have, right? I, I wonder, do you see police departments looking at this, watching and listening? Well, this should, should, this should certainly mm -hmm. give them pause 
But whenever there's an incident, you know, police departments typically, I mean, what we do is debrief. And so this trial is no different. You want to look at uh, what the officers could do differently going forward. What do we need to do in terms of changing our policies and procedures so that we don't have another incident like this? And so while I'm surprised, I thought the jury was going to hang on this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they came to the verdict that they did. I think it was the right verdict. And now we'll have to wait and see what happens with sentencing. You, you raise an, an issue there, Sergeant Dorsey, which goes to policies, right? Because these are individual trials. It's, it's policies that affect the broader behavior of officers of the law. And I, and I wonder, Sergeant Dorsey, if we could step back for a moment to remember why Dante Wright was stopped, right? He, he was stopped because he had one of those Christmas tree shaped, I believe, uh, deodorants on his rear view mirror, which is uh, against the law, I believe, locally there because it might be distracting to the driver. But, you know, yet another case, and it's not the first time we've seen this, uh, of a traffic stop for something not violent that leads to a violent encounter. Do, do police, Sergeant Dorsey, have to look at those policies for when and how they stop people? Well, we have great deference and, and, and autonomy in terms of traffic stops. And while that's a violation, it certainly is here in California. You've heard the term pretext stop. Mm-hmm. You know, those are those little ticky tack Mickey Mouse things that give an officer a reason to stop a particular individual, <laughs> somebody who generally looks like me, when you wouldn't ordinarily stop someone. And so we have a young man who lost his life because he was driving in a car that they thought wasn't registered maybe wasn't registered and had an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror. Yeah. And then to say that it was his fault because he didn't comply and tried to run, they knew who he was. They had run his license plate. They could have followed up at his house. Mm. This wasn't even a misdemeanor. This was an infraction. Yeah. And this should have never occurred. Yeah, you, you made that point before on the air, I remember, saying they knew where he was. It didn't have to happen at that moment. Ca- Caroline, sentencing is going to happen in mid-February. In Minnesota, we know the maximums here, but but we always have to take it to, into account the, the, the individual uh, person here. Uh, if the person has no previous criminal history, the guidance is six to eight and a half years, I believe. When you look at the sentencing guidelines, do you have a sense of where this might go in terms of the total sentence? So, so you're right. The judge will be bound by those guidelines and, and based off of certain characteristics of the defendant here. Ms. Potter has no previous offenses, so she's in a criminal history category that puts her in that lower level. But, you know, Jim, we did hear the prosecution say that they were going to argue for aggravating factors, which essentially means they are going to be arguing for a, a, a longer sentence than typically would be seen in this type of case. And some of those aggravating factors include we saw in that body camera footage, you know, Kim Potter, immediately after she discharged her weapon, she did not seek to render aid. Mm. Instead, she sort of um, stepped back and really monopolized the other two officers at the scene with her own uh, remorse and guilt. And certainly that remorse and guilt will be used by the defense uh, saying that, you know, that that should be a mitigating factor. But I think that the prosecutors have have a point here that, you know, she had a chance to render aid and she didn't do it. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable. I I wonder uh, when we look at, again, uh, other issues connected to this case, it's a training issue, right? Here's someone who served on the force for many years, Sergeant Dorsey, who mistook a firearm for a taser. By the way, they are built to be different, right? Different colors, worn on different sides of the body, right? Consistently, different weights. Um, Does this get to a a training issue as well, do you think? Listen, I I, I don't buy the whole, I didn't know what I had in my hand uh, for a minute. Listen, we train and we practice 
looking down uh, the barrel of a gun so that we line up our sights. And in those four or five seconds that she's yelling, taser, 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 she's looking down the barrel of that gun as we're trained to do, as she's done for 26 years, like I did for 20. And to think that she looked down the barrel of that gun and didn't realize that it wasn't yellow, that it wasn't a taser, the weight was different, and then fired it anyway is really inconceivable. Uh, One uh, other issue, and this had been a question, Caroline, was the testimony on the stand, uh, testifying in her own defense, Kim Potter here, in effect, throwing herself on the mercy of the jury, saying, I'm deeply remorseful, crying on the stand there. But legally, the trouble was, in effect, confirming that there was negligence involved, which is the standard for uh, the first and second degree manslaughter charges. I I wonder, in retrospect, was that a mistake by the defense? Well, well, that's exactly right. And I think one of the real difficulties in this case has always been, you know, there's a difference between the law and sort of your heart here. And I don't think people um, don't believe Kim Potter that she is remorseful. Clearly, you know, we saw what's known in the law as an excited utterance right after she fired. She said something to the effect of, oh, my gosh, I'm going to prison. I I shot him. So clearly there was an acceptance of guilt. There was, you know, no nobody's trying to say here that that this wasn't a mistake, which is why I think, you know, it, it's sort of um, what an issue of first impression for jurors to be able to put that aside, to be able to understand that, yes, this woman is remorseful, but that she nonetheless handled her firearm recklessly with a degree of criminal negligence. Yeah, it's a deadly weapon, as we saw. Caroline Polisi, Sergeant Dorsey, thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. And coming up next this hour, some good signs when it comes to the severity of the Omicron variant, just as the FDA has given the okay to yet another COVID fighting pill. Plus, Vladimir Putin's new warning about those troops near Ukraine, Russian troops, by the way. Also, he opens up about something that perked the ears at the Pentagon. In the health lead today, a good news, bad news scenario for the highly contagious Omicron variant. First, the good news, and there's lots of it. Two new studies back up evidence of milder cases caused by the new strain. But there is some bad news. Omicron does spread very easily, and therefore it's driving up the count of new infections nationwide, up 36% in a week. In New York City alone today, people waited for hours in freezing cold temperatures to find out if they are infected, to get those precious tests. Experts say that boosters and vaccines, they're the best protection against Omicron. That guidance has not changed. In the country, though, only 30% of those fully vaccinated are boosted. And today, two days before Christmas, a welcome gift to prevent severe illness. CNN's Athena Jones with more on what is now the second antiviral pill authorized by the FDA in the last two days. Omicron is now confirmed in all 50 states, but there is good news. Three early studies now adding to the evidence it may be less likely to cause severe disease. Still, experts warn it's too early to say for sure. It's dangerous business to be able to rely on what you perceive as a lower degree of severity. Doctors fear even if Omicron is milder than Delta, the huge spike in case numbers, particularly among the unvaccinated, could still strain hospitals in some places, like Cleveland, Ohio. We are overwhelmed. Our ICUs, our hospitals are overwhelmed. The Cleveland Clinic recently joining five area hospital systems pleading with residents in this ad 
to get vaccinated. Our emergency rooms are really being overcrowded because of the recent surge that we have seen with COVID-19 hospitalizations uh, there. Uh, uh, And this is preventable. This is what's important. But the hospital picture nationwide appears more promising. And doctors are applauding the FDA's decision today, granting emergency use authorization to a second antiviral pill, this one from Merck, that people can take at home, adding another COVID-fighting weapon to the nation's armory. Being able to have something that is oral, it's so easy, easier than giving an IV infusion uh, that you can get before you get to the hospital. That will help decompress the hospitals, and save lives. So far, while new daily cases average nearly 165,000, 36% higher than a week ago, and nearly as high as the mid-September peak of the Delta surge, hospitalizations and deaths remain well below their peaks during Delta. Washington, D.C. and New York State each setting single-day records for new COVID cases this week. But New York's governor says the hospitalization rate is only two-thirds what it was this time last year. We're not panicking. We have the resources we need. The state's high vaccination rate may be helping to keep those numbers down. As experts continue to stress, getting vaccinated and boosted is the best way to fight the latest COVID threat. 90 plus percent of the patients we see in our intensive care units are unvaccinated. You know, among mechanically ventilated patients, the sickest one, it's the number is even slightly higher. It's close to 92 percent are actually unvaccinated. So we know vaccines are the way to do it. And here in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing a scaled down New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square. Fewer people, about 15,000 instead of nearly 60,000 to allow for social distancing, with revelers required to show proof of vaccination and a photo ID, and they must wear masks. Jim. Amazing though, the show is still gonna go on. Athena Jones, thanks so much. Uh, Let's speak now to Dr. Chris Purnell. He's a public health physician in New Jersey. Good to have you, Dr. Purnell. So the data is increasingly positive, right? On on the seriousness of the illness that Omicron causes. It it tends to, in South Africa, Israel, the UK, and what we've seen here early on, not to cause as severe illness as previous variants. How should folks at home who are still planning to travel for the holidays to see friends and family, how should they take this? Uh, What should they do with this information? Because the president is saying, keep your plans. Uh, What do you say to them as a doctor and how should they protect themselves? Hi, Jim. Thanks for that. So what I tell people is you want to know whether or not you're going to be traveling with people who have vulnerabilities. Are you traveling with people who are elderly or visiting people who are elderly, those with chronic health conditions? And do people have any active symptoms that could be consistent with a coronavirus infection? That's going to change your risk profile differently. Are you vaccinated and boosted? If you're vaccinated and boosted, you are more likely to be able to travel without as many concerns Mm -hmm. as someone who is unvaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, I don't recommend that you travel or mix households. Yeah, and that's what what we hear from the president. We hear from the Dr. Fauci, et cetera. As a doctor, though, and you've got to deal with this. You're on the front lines of this, and and you see how many ICUs, et cetera, are still being overwhelmed because there are a lot of unvaccinated people out there getting very sick. Are, are you are you sensing some relief, though, based on the, the the early data on Omicron in terms of how bad this surge is going to be? 
I wouldn't say I would describe it as relief uh, yet, Jim. I say we are still vigilant, especially those of us in healthcare, because we're actually dealing with multiple surges. We're dealing with a non-COVID surge. Our hospitals are full with patients who've delayed care for months because of the pandemic. We're still dealing with a Delta surge, which led to such peak hospitalizations and death. And now we have this explosive Omicron variant. So while Omicron may cause milder disease in those who've been vaccinated and boosted or have natural immunity, for the unvaccinated, the data is not so conclusive yet. Understood. Okay. In the midst of this, folks just can't get tests, right? And by the way, there's a big regional disparity in places like New York and D.C. People want to get tested. Other places, they're not bothering. But in the places where people want to get tested, they're having trouble getting those tests. You've seen the long lines here. How does that testing crush impact the ability to respond and to, to this surge and to, to, to follow the advice you're giving here, right, is to know who you're hanging out with, right? Know if they're positive. Look, testing is a rate-limiting step. If we don't have ready access to tests where people can get responses and results within 24 hours, then the public health tool is not really being leveraged to contain spread and to have those isolate who may be positive. We need to do more of having rapid tests available to people. I welcome the White House saying that in January, families who would like tests are going to be able to ask for them through a website. But what about now? What about these weeks where Omicron is exponentially growing. So we need to do something about that. Our public health response system has to be um, advanced and made light speed better than what it is today. Okay, so on the good news side as well, uh, we now have two pills in the span of 24 hours uh, that have been authorized, one by Merck and one by Pfizer. Basically a pill you could take at home if you're infected, that shows extremely high efficacy in keeping folks out of the hospital, which helps on a couple fronts. One, folks don't get really sick, but also helps hospitals from being overwhelmed. How big a deal are these authorizations? It's a big deal. Whenever we can add solid tools to the tool chest, it's a big deal. But you got to remember, these two pills, while they are oral antivirals, you take them early in your course of infection, so within three to five days. Um, Pfizer's pill has a considerable edge over the Merck pill because it had a higher efficacy rate, around 90% at preventing hospitalization or death. The Merck pill was around 30%. But there are drug-to-drug interactions with both of these pills, and there are some concerns with the Merck pill around those who are younger. It could impair bone cartilage and growth, um, and as well in those who are pregnant or those who are reproductive age. So a physician does have more tools in the toolkit, but we'll have to decide what is the best fit for the yeah. person that is standing or sitting behind them. Okay. Booster, vaccination boosters, you said it, everybody says it, the data shows it, it saves lives. It's the way forward, particularly with Omicron. And yet today, it's just about a third of the fully vaccinated in the country who've taken advantage of boosters, 30.8%. Um, you've dealt with a lot of patients, and I imagine you've dealt with uh, vaccine-hesitant patients. How do you break through to them? How does the country break through to them? You say persistent. I talk about the efficacy and safety of vaccines and boosters on a daily basis, whether that's in a healthcare setting or whether that's on my phone or through text. And I tell you, whenever you get those victories, those victories loom large. When you get the text from a person or a family member like I did today, hey, my daughter went out and got her first dose. She had been adamant that she 
would not get vaccinated. It works dealing with people's fears and concerns and remaining consistent in your message. Don't say what you don't know with certainty and help people to dissect the misinformation and disinformation that they've likely heard that's contributing to their lack of confidence. We can overwhelm people with truth by doing it with empathy. I hear you. I wish you luck. Dr. Chris Purnell, I hope you get a break over the holidays. Thank you. President Biden admits that nothing's been good enough to stop the virus, but his administration is considering now a new move. I'll tell you what that is that's coming up. Topping our politics lead, the nationwide scramble to find COVID tests before Christmas and the White House scramble to explain the shortage. This is a line of cars waiting to get a test in central Florida. In Washington, D.C., where infections are now at an all-time high, residents waited for hours in the cold at local libraries to collect free at-home tests, which were sold out at many local stores and pharmacies. CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports that critics say President Biden's promise to ship out half a billion tests to Americans is a little little, a little late. (laughs) How did we get it wrong? Nobody saw it coming. Nobody in the whole world. A new tidal wave of COVID cases has Americans scrambling for tests before the holidays and President Biden on defense. No, I don't think it's a failure. I think it's uh, you could argue that we should have known a year ago, six months ago, two months ago, a month ago. Nothing's been good enough. Good afternoon. Days after his administration announced plans to purchase and ship 500 million at-home tests to Americans, the president acknowledging he wishes he had thought about ordering half a billion test kits two months ago. Now, the tests he called for earlier this week won't be in Americans' hands until at least next month, after the holiday season. It is the president who said himself that he wishes that he had thought about this idea two months ago. So, did, you know, why did nobody think of this or did the president miss the mark here? The president and the team did take steps to increase capacity. Of course, if there would have been 500 billion tests and we would have known that there were these, uh, you know, very transmissible variants, uh, that's one thing. But the president knew that we needed to increase testing capacity. As for whether the U.S. will follow Israel's lead and greenlight a second booster shot for some. I listened to the scientist. And I'm sure the scientists are paying very close attention to that. There may be a need for another booster, but that remains to be seen. So it remains a possibility. It remains a possibility. Biden has another New Year's resolution, turning his broader domestic agenda into law, despite Senator Joe Manchin voicing opposition. I still think we'll be able to get a significant amount of what we need to get done, done, particularly as the American people figure out what is in this legislation. It's extremely consequential. And President Biden also offering his most direct support yet for reforming the filibuster to create a carve out for voting rights legislation, allowing it to pass by a simple majority. But the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, making very clear the White House knows they don't have the votes right now to reform those Senate rules. And she also made clear that the president really sees this as a last resort when he said if the if it's the only thing standing between voting rights getting done, then he would support that reform. Jim. Haven't offered an alternative either. Jeremy Diamond at the White House, thank you. Also in our politics lead, former President Donald Trump's fight to keep his White House records away from the January 6th Select Committee has now reached the Supreme Court. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider has been following. Uh, so, so Trump doesn't have a great track record uh, in court. Every effort to block the release of these records. Uh, any expectation it's different this time? 
It could be, Jim. You know, this is solely in the hands of the Supreme Court to decide how to proceed, despite lower courts saying that Trump's arguments were weak here. And Trump's legal team, they're asking for two things specifically. They want the justices to take up this case to schedule arguments, since Trump's lawyers argued this case raises novel issues of executive privilege, mostly how much weight a former president actually has to assert the privilege. But more importantly and more pressing for the former president, his lawyers are also asking the justices to keep any turnover of these documents on hold while they decide whether to take up the full case. So specifically, their filing says this, the limited interest the committee may have in immediately obtaining the requested records pales in comparison to President Trump's interest in securing judicial review before he suffers irreparable harm. Now, Trump's legal team, they have been successful so far blocking those hundreds of documents for being handed over to the committee, despite losing at both lower courts. And these records, they would really be key for the committee to find out what Trump was doing on and leading up to January 6th, because these records, they include handwritten notes from his then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, also drafts of speeches, visitor and call logs from the White House, all of it Trump wants kept secret. Of course, the current president, Joe Biden, he said he will not block the documents. And so far, Jim, the two courts below have said he gets to make the decision, not Trump. So we'll see if the Supreme Court takes up this case and if they block those documents in the meantime. Jim? So how quickly could the Supreme Court move on this? Well, they could move quickly, but the point is they actually don't have to because these court documents, they'll remain blocked until the Supreme Court acts here. Now, their next conference is actually scheduled for the last or for the first week, end of the first week in January. That's when they could decide whether or not to take up this case. But, you know, Jim, they probably will move pretty quickly once we get into January because they must know that time is of the essence here. These documents are key to the House investigation, which they're yeah. ramping up in the coming months here, yeah. Jim. And a delay, you could argue, would be a win for, yeah, for the Trump campaign. It already has been. <laughs> Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Coming up next, a CNN exclusive. U.S. ally Saudi Arabia actively making its own ballistic missiles now and with the help of the adversary the U.S. and the Defense Department cite as America's biggest adversary. In our world lead this afternoon, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki flatly rejected what she calls the bellicose rhetoric from Russia's Vladimir Putin earlier today. During his end-of-year news conference, Putin repeatedly blamed the West for the crisis along Russia's border with Ukraine. Psaki insisted the aggression is really Russia's alarming military buildup there along the border. CNN's Melissa Bell, she's live in Moscow. And, and I wonder, as you listen to those words from Putin and others did, it sounded like he's making the case for war, right? I, the administration here is talking about diplomatic off-ramps. Not sure I heard welcoming words for those off-ramps from the Russian president. That's right, Jim. Beyond those aggressive words towards NATO and that laying of blame at NATO's feet, you're quite right. In many ways, Vladimir Putin sounded like he was making the case for why an intervention might be needed at some point, talking about uh, the historical need uh, to protect the Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine uh, from what he said he believed uh, his impression was that an aggression, an, an intervention might be being planned uh, by Ukraine itself. But of course, the harshest words of all uh, for NATO, for the United States, 
And really, uh, what we're talking about is one reality, two completely different readings of it, with each side blaming the other for being responsible for the rise in tensions, each side saying that they're prepared to go in if need be uh, against uh, the other. And uh, really, Vladimir Putin, uh, even though afterwards we heard from the White House secretary saying, look, NATO is not an offensive organization. It is about defense. That is not the way Vladimir Putin sees it. Have a listen. How would the Americans react if we placed our missiles on the border between Canada and the United States, or on the Mexican border? Not a single inch to the east, they told us in the 90s. And what do you know? They cheated. They just deceived us blatantly. Five waves of NATO expansion, and there you go. Now in Romania and Poland, weapon systems appear. That gives you an idea of the level of distrust that Vladimir Putin has towards NATO. The only thing that the two sides seem to agree on, Jim, at this stage is that talks should happen in January. The basis of them, what might come of them, uh, more unclear perhaps even than it was after that nearly four hours of press conference from Vladimir Putin. Of course, one thing that Putin ignored in his comments there is it's Russia, actually, that's taken territory over in Europe in recent years, in Georgia uh, and in Ukraine. Look at Crimea. I, I, I wonder... Do we know what would be on the agenda of any such talks? Because Russia is making demands that the U.S. calls non-starters. What is the room here for discussion? They spoke spoke via video conference uh, a few days ago. That's right. And the more talk there is, the more rhetoric comes out, the less idea, the less sense there is that there is really any room for negotiation. And he said so today, Vladimir Putin saying that he was asked directly, Jim, will you invade Uh, Ukraine. His reply, it will not be a function of those discussions. It will not be a function of those negotiations. It will actually be all about uh, whether or not the West, the United States, NATO, accept those demands that NATO announce, decide that it will not expand eastwards. That's not going to happen, Jim. So very difficult to see what can come out of those talks at all. Yeah, if that's that's the deal breaker for them. Melissa Bell in Moscow, take care. Putin also spoke about working with China to develop high-precision weaponry. This turns out to be just part of China's push to spread its military influence around the world. CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman has an exclusive look at how the Chinese apparently are helping a key U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia, develop ballistic missiles. A building arms race in the Middle East with Chinese fingerprints. These satellite images show the Al-Duwadmi site in central Saudi Arabia, where U.S. intelligence officials say Riyadh is building its own ballistic missiles. Unable to get U.S. help on developing the weapons, the Saudis have turned to China. U.S. officials across multiple agencies have been briefed on classified intel, revealing multiple large-scale transfers of sensitive ballistic missile tech from Beijing to Riyadh, two sources tell CNN. The used burn pit for rocket fuel, a clue the Saudis are at work. China's foreign ministry called the two countries comprehensive strategic partners, telling CNN in a statement, such cooperation does not violate any international law and does not involve the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. This comes as the Biden administration is trying to negotiate a return to the nuclear deal with Iran, a bitter regional rival of the Saudis. Iran has already taken a hardline approach to the talks and has refused to talk about limits on its own ballistic missiles. 
proliferation of ballistic missiles in an already unstable region threatens to trigger a Middle East arms race where just about any outcome is dangerous. We're seeing all of this really fancy military technology showing up in the region, and we don't have in place any of the kind of you know institutions or, or security norms uh, that you'd like to see to prevent it from getting used. As the Saudis are apparently working quietly with the Chinese, the Russians are boasting about their relationship with Beijing. President Vladimir Putin telling journalists at his year-end presser about all the areas the two work together. The Chinese army is equipped with the most advanced weapons systems. We even develop some high-tech weapons together. We are collaborating in the fields of space technologies, aviation, planes, and helicopters. Credit to my colleague Zachary Cohen and the reporting there about Saudi Arabia and China. You see this dynamic play out in other fields as well, such as on the diplomatic front. The U.S., for example, will boycott, diplomatically that is, the upcoming uh, Winter Olympics in China. Meanwhile, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, says he's looking forward to meeting face-to-face with China's president. Jim? More and more cooperation between Russia and China. Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon, thanks so much. Coming up next, the tough decision so many families are now facing, whether to gather with loved ones this weekend, even as COVID spreads. How can they do it safely? There's been a painful reality for many Americans. That is COVID, forcing them to cancel holiday travel plans or personal plans. In some cases, plans to visit family they haven't seen in two years, thanks to the pandemic. Joining us now is Jasmine Maisonette, who lives in Washington State. She and her fiancé had to scrap their Christmas trip because of her positive COVID test. And Jasmine, I'm sorry to hear I've got friends and colleagues in the same boat. Uh, It's it's tough. First, I want to ask you, because you tested positive, how are you feeling? Yeah, so um, I would say I'm lucky, definitely fortunate to have mild symptoms. Um, I have a a cough, a bit of a headache, uh, fatigue but other than that you know i know there have been worse cases out there so uh, just receiving the news it's the only decision that we could make is to stay home for the safety of literally everyone else i get it i mean listen it's it's a responsible decision but of course you leave a lot of people disappointed so so tell us about making that decision how do they react do they understand yeah yeah um family's very understanding you know throughout this entire pandemic we've We've had family Zoom calls every week, which has been really nice, uh, uplifting for my grandma, uh, who's dealing with, with my grandpa and, and all of his health issues that he's going through. So being able to have that support, even though we're not able to go there in person, is definitely also helpful just to get through every day being in quarantine. <laughs> You're you're in one of the places that actually was one of the first to experience the pandemic at all. Kirkland, suburb of Kirkland, in, in Seattle suburb of Kirkland in Washington state. You know, so, so you, you've seen this kind of stuff before. I just wonder uh, what it's like to be going through this so much later. So, you know, months and a couple of years since, since it all started. It's kind of funny because Carmen and I and my fiance were joking about like, Oh, we wish we could just go back to the, the, the beginning of the pandemic when everything was, you know, uncertain and it was a good break from the mundane everyday life. And now that we're forced to be in it, it's kind of like, OK, well, you kind of think about maybe maybe there's a, a bigger reason why we're not supposed to travel right now. And yeah. there is there's a pandemic happening and yeah. folks are not taking it as seriously or, you know still wavering about being vaccinated or getting the booster or whatnot. It's, 
it it it's it seems like an option until it's kind of like you don't you're running out of options. This is the only thing that um, can, for the most part, guarantee yeah. as much safety. As possible. I mean, it's frustrating, right? Because the 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 the, the advice has been so consistent and so strong throughout get vaccinated get boosted well listen jasmine i hope you guys find uh, a decent plan b you know to connect with folks over the holidays and we do wish you a happy holidays thank you very much yeah we still have our zoom we still have technology to get in contact with folks so it's it's just a little bit of a change of plans going with the flow so we're happy to still be healthy well send them our best as well And I'm Jim Shudo in again today for Jake Tapper. Our coverage begins next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 